Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalene Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. My co-host is Sarus Farivar, Ars Technica's senior business editor. In this episode, we talk to lawyer and law professor Elizabeth Joe, who researches surveillance technology and policing, and she tells us all about the future of the surveillance state. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in, in investigating and researching surveillance and policing and the legal implications of those? Oh, what is my Batman origin story? It's an interesting paradox. Governments need surveillance because no matter what, if you have a government, it needs to find out information about its citizens in order to do good things, to provide security, to distribute benefits, to figure out who to help. So in that sense, surveillance is essentially a part of what it means to govern. On the other hand, if surveillance runs amok, it means that the government knows so much about us that it might do things like inhibit our movement, inhibit our freedom of expression, punish unconventional behavior. So I don't, if the, the tension isn't between surveillance and nothing, it's between what's the right balance of surveillance, particularly in a democratic society, you know, how much is just enough surveillance that we can have the things that we want, like safety and security, but not so much that people feel oppressed, afraid, in many ways feel the pressure to conform, um, not be different, not stick out, not protest, and not advocate for change. So that, that's, that's the central paradox that interests me. So one of the things that I am always emailing you in particular about is helping me understand how privacy works in the real world, in real legal situations, right? You and I have talked a lot about uh, license plate readers. These are scanners that are scanning people's license plates. We've talked a lot about stingrays. As these technologies become more and more complex and more and more pervasive, do you feel like that there's a kind of near future in which all of these things are just commonplace or there are other things that are kind of in the wings that, are, that, that aren't quite as pervasive yet that we should all be freaked out about? Yes and yes. So I think that uh, you know, a lot of the surveillance technology we're hearing about now is gonna become ubiquitous. It's gonna be ubiquitous not, because, not just because local police departments are gonna use things like stingrays and depending on how they regulate them, you know, more or less, but all kinds of surveillance technologies like ALPR, facial recognition technology. The real interesting thing about technology is that when sophisticated technology becomes cheap, it's transformative, and that's good and bad, right? So if you think about things like cell phone cameras, cell phone cameras means that you can have really sophisticated recordings of things, of people and their actions, and that leads to realizations like, hey, we can have police put on these mini cameras on their bodies to render them more accountable. We can have citizens take videos of police officers in perhaps situations of misconduct to hold them accountable. But it also means the potential for increased surveillance, right? So, you know, I, I, I've written a little bit about body cameras. Body cameras are a terrific example of what happens when you just decide that we're going to embrace the technology without thinking carefully through what might be the privacy implications. And it's not good enough to say, we'll adopt this technology first and figure out the rules later. So, you know, if you think about what prompted where we are now with police body cams, or at least most of the big wave of police body cams, 
it's Ferguson, August 2014. Mike Brown and Sean Ferguson. We don't really know what happens because there's a conflicting eyewitness testimony. So a big wave of accountability measures are proposed. But the thing that becomes most promising are, hey, let's put body cameras on every police They're on officer. They're every cop in Oakland. Right, every cop in Oakland. Every police officer in America should have one. Uh, the president's task force on 21st century policing says body cameras are a good accountability measure. So most police chiefs around the country are embracing this. Most policymakers are saying, this is a great idea. So fast forward to where we are now, there's lots of money for police departments to, to adopt police body cameras, but what are the rules? You know, so when should police officers turn them on? Should they ever be able to turn them off? Can you request not to be recorded? Let's say you're afraid of some information being publicly displayed. There's no uniformity you know, in, the, in the United States about when these things should happen. And some police departments aren't, don't even have firm rules about that in the first place. If there's tons of police body cam video, who can look at it? Can journalists just ask for all of it, some of it? What are the circumstances? Can you and I just have a FOIA request and say, you know, I, or a PRA request and say, I want to see what's happening, what my police department's doing? And on the flip side, as far as surveillance is concerned, have we really considered what it means for police officers to have little tiny cameras that could record everything? You know, what technology could be applied to police body cameras? Could we have facial recognition technology on body cameras that police would wear? You know, I can imagine a police officer using a, you know, near future, really cheap camera that records everything, walking up and down the street with facial recognition technology, right? And any other kind of technology that's just on the cusp of becoming widely adopted and much cheaper. You know, any kind of artificial intelligence big data program. You know, what if we move to a situation where local police departments have uh, the means to use uh, big data programs to say, let's figure out what the threat potential is of anyone we encounter. How would we know? We'd have some artificial intelligence program that would scan every imaginable database to figure out you know, what kind of person are you? Do you pose a threat to me as an officer? So yes, there are huge privacy implications. And that doesn't mean that all this technology needs to be abandoned. But too often we sort of say, this is great, let's embrace it, and we'll figure out the problems later. I know one of the things that you've been looking at a lot is DNA databases. And um, I'm curious, first of all, what's going on with DNA databasing in California? How, how is that proceeding? And also just what what are the, are there any positive sides to it? What are, what are we looking at here in terms of the future of how this data will be used? For a long time now, we've uh, collected the DNA of those who've been convicted. Conviction DNA, felony conviction DNA is common and it's part of every, every state in the United States does it. So convicted of a felony. Right. Some states have gone further and permit uh, DNA collection for certain kinds of serious misdemeanor convictions, however. California also collects DNA for those who have been arrested for felonies, as have many other states now, and the trend is likely that more and more states will do that. So I think that concern in a place like California where we permit DNA collection upon arrest is there is a big difference between being arrested and being convicted of something, right? You can think of it as sort of like a funnel. You know, not everybody who gets arrested gets convicted. Some people, you know, they never make it past that arrest. Some people get their charges dismissed. Some people are acquitted. What happens in that gap, right? Do, you know, why do we need that extra layer of DNA collection? Because if you're going to be convicted, if someone's convicted, they're going to get their DNA collected anyway, right? So what happens is we have a clump of DNA or a group of DNA from a very large number of people 
who may not ever be convicted of anything. And is it really okay for the government to hold on to that DNA when ultimately these people are not convicted? And it may be that, of course, DNA is going to be useful in investigating crimes, but we never think in American law of just saying, well, as long as it's useful, we should allow the government to do that. Is California an aberration in that way? Are we different? No, California's a leader, as it is in so many other things. We have, just because we're the largest state, we have the largest arrestee DNA database. But, you know, the federal government does it, many other states do it. And it's going to become uh, more of a trend. There was a Supreme Court case uh, a couple of years ago upholding the constitutionality of arrestee DNA collection. And the federal government also offers financial incentives for states to uh, start arrestee DNA databases. So all of that put together means that states have a pretty good incentive to do it, and why wouldn't you? I mean, no one wins on the platform of let's collect less DNA from criminals. People win on the platform of let's get more, right? So. One of the things I've always been curious about is what's the difference legally or socially between collecting fingerprint data, other biometric data, and collecting DNA? So this is one of the most hotly sort of contested issues, right? So a lot of, most of the courts that have looked at this comparison have said, there's no difference, right? Mm -hmm. You leave your fingerprints everywhere, you leave your DNA everywhere, we're only interested in figuring out who you are. So there's no difference. And we've never thought of fingerprints as having any kind of constitutional level protection, or at least most of the time. So DNA shouldn't be any different, right? The problem here, of course, is that the DNA that is taken uh, is uh, analyzed, and only a small portion of it is put into the centralized database called CODIS, which is used for investigative purposes. But all states you know, retain that sample. They still have that biological sample. And in fact, the FBI encourages states to hold on to it in case of mistake or they need to retest it. So I guess the question is, do we feel comfortable with having all of these biological samples everywhere? You know, it becomes uh, a question of how much information should we have? And I think that's ultimately the question you were asking me before, Sirius, about information and privacy. So, you know, everyone, especially sort of the, like the Ars Technica group, is concerned about digital privacy and digital information. A good analogy would be sort of like everyone's sort of this microbiome, like we live in this cloud of microbes around us. So you can think of, you have a kind of information biome, right? A data biome around you. It's everything from what you do online, all the traces you have online. Everyone's going to leave some DNA here today. You know, you've got all your drinks, you're leaving your saliva here, you're going to get in your cars, some Oakland ALPR camera is going to capture where you're going. Everywhere we go, we're leaving this whole trail of data. And that's, I think, the real question going forward into the future. We are now amassing a ton of data every day, every minute, literally, right? You know, my phone tracked me as I was coming here because I was trying to find the bar. So. Do we have any control over that data? How do we as individuals have some sort of ownership or control over that data? I think the answer right now is we don't have a lot of control. Someone else, whether it's Google or advertisers or the government, is able to collect that. You know? And for many people, it's not a big deal. You know, whatever you watched last night on Netflix or the last purchase you made on Amazon, so what if you know, that was made on your past purchase uh, uh, history or information? But what if it were those uses were more about figuring out something about you on the part of criminal investigation, right? We wanted to know something more about you because what you did might link us to someone else 
Or in the case of DNA, maybe we could collect DNA from you without you knowing it because maybe your DNA would link us to someone you were genetically related to that we're actually interested in. That's a technique called familial search, which many states are, are becoming more and more interested in pursuing. You can think of it as an entire world of information that we're all creating now all of the time. We have very little control over it in most of those in, in most of the cases. I mean, no one, unless you're the most paranoid Howard Hughes type, is going to be wiping off your cocktail glass before you leave. <laughs> you're not going to burn out all your paper. We don't live that way. And so we're becoming kind of helpless in our ability to generate all this information and have no control over it. It seems like that technology vastly outstrips the capacity of the legal system to deal with these issues that the legal system is always going to be playing catch up is always you know by the time we get a landmark supreme court case the technology is a decade behind already uh, or more and so i'm wondering as somebody who studies both the technology and the law how do you make sense of that how how like do you feel like is our legal system broken do we need a new one to move faster like how do we deal with that I, I think it's a perennial problem. I don't think there's a good answer. I, I think a lot of times people say, well, you know, the courts are terrible. We shouldn't rely on constitutional law, which is decided by courts. We should rely on Congress or state legislatures. Well, it turns out that they're not particularly good at understanding the technology either. So what it really calls for is a kind of public vigilance, right? And so, and, and this is another area that I'm interested in, and that is you can only have public vigilance if you don't have government secrecy. Right? You can only figure out you know, what controls there need to be and have public input if we actually know what the government's doing. You can't complain about something you don't know is happening. Right? And so we can only have as much democratic control over our local police departments, over uh, what, the, you know, what the federal government does, if we actually know what's going on. So I think that kind of sort of relentless vigilance on the part of the public is really essential. That is what really spurs change and control and legislation. How do we have that kind of public vigilance when it turns out that certain police forces are privatized? And so we can't, as public citizens, we don't actually know what's going on with those. What do you mean by privatized? Well, uh, we were talking earlier about how certain police forces in the Bay Area are basically private. Like they, they work for FedEx or they work for uh, other organizations that are not part of the government, basically and not regulated by the government. So that, that's a whole other can of worms, right? So, you know, in the United States, we have our sort of local police departments here. We have our Oakland PD here. But there's a whole other side of policing, which is probably three, four, five times larger than a police, public police departments, and that's private security. So most people scoff at that because they say, like, oh, that's the security guard at the 7-Eleven or something. But actually, it's a part of a much larger network of public police officers who moonlight, sometimes in their public uniforms for private pay, this corporate security all behind the scenes, you know, Target has its own crime lab, you know. So, like, you know, if you think about it, there's a, there's a lot of incentive to have a kind of privatization or really uh, self-control in terms of pursuing and investigating crime you know, on the, on the part of the corporate sector. And that's right, I think that's even more disturbing than the secrecy we have that, that sometimes we know about or find out about in the public sector because there is no such thing as a public records act for private security or private policing. There's no way that we can really find out. And to make matters worse, you know, everybody's watched enough TV, so you've heard about your Miranda rights, you've heard about your Fourth Amendment rights. Those don't exist with private security. You know, you can scream Miranda all you want if you've been detained by a private security guard. 
doesn't matter. It doesn't have any application at all. So that is, I think, really worrisome because it's a totally different system of regulation. It's likely to be much, much larger, and it's totally driven by profit. You mentioned that surveillance is not inherently evil, right? It's kind of a necessary thing that, that we have to have to be able to save us from bad guys in the world, right? And so I'm wondering if it's your job to be an Oakland police officer or it's your job to be an FBI agent or it's your job to be in the NSA or some other law enforcement agency like that, is it also your job to make that legal calculation of, oh, am I like violating somebody's rights when I'm deploying this technology? Is that part of their job or should it be? Oh, I think that it absolutely is a part of their job. I mean, we can make their jobs easier by making the oversight very clear. We can make it their jobs easier by um, making very clear what they can and cannot do. I think one of the biggest tensions here is that we want to give law enforcement enough freedom to investigate the crimes that they have to because we want to live in a safe and secure society. But on the other hand, if you give law enforcement officials too much discretion, we actually aren't really sure what's happening. We're not really sure when they're doing things or how they're doing things. And so yes, in every individual case, there has to be that kind of balance, but that's not a difficult, or I think a particularly controversial aspect of, of being a law enforcement official. That's the bargain that everyone has to strike in that kind of job, you know? We don't permit, maybe this isn't gonna make any sense to have the crowd, a dirty, hairy kind of um, police investigation, <laughs> all right, where you just, old reference, but no matter what, the zealous pursuit of justice, right? That's not American law enforcement. We don't expect that and we don't want that. What we want is a kind of procedurally correct and a vigorous enforcement of rights. And, and the truth of the matter is, you'll get a lot of criticism that says, well, that means lots of bad guys go free. I mean, come on, the few cases you hear about, most of the bad guys are not going free. I mean, most of the bad guys are getting caught in the criminal justice system, as well as other people who perhaps should not be caught up in the criminal justice system. That's, I think, always the, the outlier. And then the biggest myth that has to be exploded in the, in the age that we're moving forward in is this myth of, you've got nothing to hide, so why should you care about surveillance? I mean, I think that is one of the most ridiculous things that, uh, out there that's thrown about all the time. It's not about whether you have anything to hide. It's about having the freedom from some uh, overarching surveillance. Uh, and, and that kind of freedom is about the freedom to be different or the freedom to protest or the freedom to just do things that in an uninhibited way where you know you're not being watched. My concern is that space is shrinking ever more dramatically all the time. And, and that space is shrinking not just in, in, at the hands of law enforcement, but of advertisers and you know every other means by which we're living our lives. From a legal perspective, last week there was a report that came out about the San Francisco Police Department and the fact that they're essentially the largest law enforcement agency that has no oversight whatsoever. And in fact, I asked my police chief in San Leandro what oversight they had and basically gave me the same answer, that there's no effective oversight. What can be done, especially with respect to the fact that in California we have the Police Bill of Rights? Oh boy, you have a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> Oversight's a tough question. I mean, in the law, oversight comes in the, in the form of lawsuits, right? It's a very strange feedback loop, however, because who pays when you sue the police? The police officers don't pay, the police department doesn't pay, the taxpayers pay, right? And that's a strange way to incentivize police reform. Too often, civilian oversight review boards don't have very much power in terms of what they can recommend or even do in terms of making changes. It's this kind of relentless public engagement or demand for public engagement that can do a lot. 
I mean, we live in a world of social media and publicity in a 24-hour news cycle. Police departments do respond to public pressure. I mean, changes can happen from people just saying, this is unacceptable, and, the, and literally the world is watching, right? I mean, the world is watching, and you have to do something different. What sort of surveillance technology do I see in the next 10 years or so? I think we'll see much more of our lives sort of deeply embedded in, like, the age of the algorithm, I think. You know, already, like, everything we do is sort of gently nudged or pushed by this idea of these basically formulas or calculations about what we should do, where should we should go, innocuous things, but more like also just as I mentioned before, like what kind of threat might you pose if a police department algorithm was used to deploy it in some sort of mass way. I think another thing that we haven't mentioned tonight and that's coming up in the future, in the near future, is robotics. I mean, I think that's really going to change a lot of aspects of our society. So robotics in terms of people who care for us, but since we're talking about policing tonight. Like a Robocop? Like a Robocop. I actually saw a security robot in, the, in, in Palo Alto like? last it was actually really innocuous looking. It had a kind of like Mr. Softy uh, music jingle. Um, so it was sort of deliberately designed to look. Did it also serve ice cream? No, it didn't. <laughs> but, it, but it was, I think, deliberately de yeah, designed not to be threatening. But what if you had a surveillance police robots everywhere of that nature, right? Just watching all the time. Police robots are cheap, are going to be cheap. They're never going to get tired. They're never going to, well, hopefully never be racist or biased in any other way. So yeah, I think that's another thing to think about. It's going to change the way that we interact with each other. Self-driving cars are not 10 years away, I don't think. I think they're coming sooner than that. Self-driving cars, I think, are a perfect kind of metaphor for thinking about what's happening in the, in the far future. Big changes in technology that are going to be really transformative, but also have surveillance implications. Everyone thinks self-driving cars are going to be so awesome because we're going to save lives and reduce accidents. But what about all that information that's going to get produced, right? Like, who's it going to be shared with? Insurance companies? Is it just going to be automatically relayed to the police? Is there going to be no more traffic enforcement by human police officers once we have self-driving cars? Can self-driving cars break the law if they need to? Then we'd have to program them to break the law, right? That's a kind of weird thing to think about. So here you see you know, everyone talking about touting the benefits and how wonderful it's going to be without, I think, not enough thinking about privacy, information flows, all the things that, that we're talking about here. So the questions were, uh, is there any uh, Fourth Amendment regulation of things like your public travel? And the second question was, is there a way that police could, uh, if they wanted to, just watch you know, uh, the information or the people traveling without uh, keeping the data? So the second one is really a policy question, and I think that's a really important example of what communities can do. Say, like, this is what we want for our police department. You can watch, you can use certain kinds of readers, but don't keep the data. Or if you're going to keep it, keep it for 30 days, not indefinitely, right? These are policy choices that communities can weigh in on. As to the first one, the Fourth Amendment answer is not a good one, which is, you know, the, the basic Fourth Amendment response is anything you sort of publicly expose to the world is fair game, not just to the police, but to anyone, right? So if it's fair game for anyone, then the police should certainly be able to take a look at it. It's not just cars, right? It's the, you know phones, everywhere we go, everywhere we go online, all this exposure all the time. And this goes back to this idea of, are there any truly private spaces anymore? To what extent do you think using these public-private partnerships to basically farm out culpability to follow the constitutional guarantees is going to be becoming a larger factor?
The example was Stingray technology, cell phone sur uh, surveillance. That's manufactured only by like a handful of companies, but primarily the Harris Corporation. Their arrangement with either the FBI or police departments that use their technology often involves having to not talk about the technology itself. You know, how much of, of a problem will this be in the future? I think it's going to be increasingly a problem because, you know, police have always wanted to enhance their senses, right? If a police officer uses binoculars, that's enhancing the, the officer's senses. But that now the technology is proliferating so much that what we see are police departments are consumers in the private marketplace just like you and I, right? Except there are much larger consequences when a police department buys a private product and the manufacturer says, you can have it, but you can't tell anybody about it. Right? And so this is just one example, but I foresee there will be many other instances of this, and there are besides just the Stingrays, even things like their big data programs, there are predictive policing software companies providing information. They're not willing to, and they don't have to, tell anybody, any of us, about what they're doing. They only have to sell the product to the police department. How do we know how effective such things are when they're purely private market products and the consumer, if you like, is the police department? So that is very troubling. Are they consciously uh, adopting these means to avoid legal restrictions? I don't think so. I think it's just simply that we can't expect any local police department to become Silicon Valley you know, companies. They're going to just you know, resort to the private marketplace. And so there's going to be many more things like this. You know, that, you know, startups exist not just for consumer pleasure, but you know, government surveillance. And uh, there's, there's a huge market out there. And not all of it is just built specifically for local law enforcement. So if anyone's always interested in policing, always watch what the military is doing. Because whatever technology the military has, it inevitably it trickles down to policing. So um, that's another area in which investment, private market products move from one sector to local policing. Thanks so much for being here and for all of you for coming out.